The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. finally discovered it i have finally found a foolproof way a foolproof method to get an, an even more expanded audience for this program and we're doing very well knock on wood but you know we'd like to grow the audience a bit more we're going to ship this entire the entire new york metropolitan area to Australia. Why? Well, uh, my brother Nicholas, who recently celebrated his his birthday, and uh, his uh, beautiful wife, my beautiful sister-in-law, Kat, they are in Australia right now. And I just received a message moments ago that indicates they are listening to this program. I would venture to say that in the three and a half years that we have been on the air, the number of times that they have listened to this program live is statistically pretty close to zero. So now I'm thinking, we're marketing this show all wrong. Rather than do a show for the U.S., we should get people in Australia or Hawaii, where it's kind of a more normal time zone. We should try and get them to listen. With the beauty of the Internet, you can listen anytime you want. Now, are you familiar with, uh, and don't feel bad if you're not, because up until recently I wasn't either, but you probably know the story. Are you familiar with Mithridates? I believe that's the correct pronunciation. Mithridates the Great. He was the ruler of the kingdom of Pontus, which was in northern Anatolia from 120 to 63 BC, and one of the Roman Republic's most formidable and determined opponents. He was effective, he was ambitious, and he was ruthless. And he sought to dominate Asia, the Black Sea region. He waged several hard-fought wars to break Roman dominion over Asia and the Hellenic world. He's been called the greatest ruler of the kingdom of Pontus. That's how you get that title, Mithridates the Great. They don't just give it away to anybody. But I think it's relevant here because he cultivated an immunity to poisons by regularly ingesting sub-lethal doses of poisons. And after that, other rulers, other dictators, other people did the same thing. And they, they called that technique Mithridatism. It's named for him. Why do I mention this? I, When I come to work just about every night, it's dark out. When I come home from work just about every morning... It's dark out. I am leaving work, leaving home, and coming home in the dark. I am living my life completely nocturnally at night. So when it's January or February and the whole world is complaining about seasonal affective disorder, 
I don't really see any difference because life is the same for me. Now, seasonal affective disorder, which uh, you've heard about a great deal, probably read about it in the newspaper, probably seen it in movies and television. I suffer from seasonal affective disorder. I think what you're experiencing is seasonal affective disorder, not inappropriately sad for short is basically the, it's more than just a theory, it's documented, there's been recent scientific papers about this, that basically because you're getting less light, because the day is shorter and shorter, that you're getting depressed. You're getting less vitamin D, and there's this other whole phalanx of associated issues related to seasonal affective disorder. Mood. You know, this existence of wintertime depression, uh, which they call, again, it's called SAD, Seasonal Affective Disorder, is now widely accepted. People are experiencing, and I know this from neighbors and friends, uh, persistent sadness, anxiety lasting for at least two weeks, a sense of hopelessness, worthlessness, decreased energy, overeating, oversleeping. Many people say they experience a subdued mood without meeting all the criteria for a diagnosis of SAD. But now there's even more stuff coming out that says it's not just your mood. Sadness or SAD, seasonal affective disorder, it affects your memory. It affects your concentration. It affects your sociality, your willingness, your desire to be social. It affects your sexuality, your libido. And... I have to tell you, and I think I'm viewing myself completely objectively, my mood or any of the other things that I've just mentioned, completely unchanged. And I think it's because I'm living my life as if it's January every day. And I'm curious if that's the case for you. Look, if you're up right now, unless you're up late and you're rarely up this late, or if you're... um, I don't know. Really, that's the only exception. If you're up right now, chances are you're like me. You're a nighttime cat. You're totally nocturnal. So I'm curious if you find yourself affected by seasonal affective disorder. Because maybe somehow this is the solution. Maybe the solution is not to get people vitamin D supplements and all the other things. Maybe the solution is to get everybody trained to living their life in the dark. And I know that sounds silly, but I don't mean it to be silly. Do you know why pirates wear eye patches? Why they wore it back in the day? Everyone thinks it was because they um, only had one eye. Not really true. Some of them, maybe. But for the most part, the reason that pirates wore eye patches, and I learned this from uh, my brother Alexander's longtime companion, Marley. She told me this recently is that because they needed to be up on, on, the, on the deck, right? And that was sunny. It was bright. And they needed good vision there. But they also needed to go below deck. And remember, this is an era where there were no lights. And it was dark. So what they would do is they'd have one eye trained for darkness and one eye trained for light. So when they were above deck, they would use the eye trained for light To keep that eye open. When they'd go below deck, they'd switch the eye patch over and use the one that had been conditioned for darkness. So they were always used to either the light or the dark. I am wondering, and I'm just wondering, and I I know this may sound crazy, but I don't think it is. I am wondering if there's a way 
to get the rest of the world a little bit more like us, the night people. What do you think? 800-848-9222. John Banzaf is here. Very excited. He is one of the smartest men in America. Love him, hate him, disagree, agree. The man is absolutely brilliant. He is a... Professor Emeritus at George Washington University Law School. And boy, oh boy, are there a lot of issues I want to ask him about. Not only do you have these protests, which I maintain, if you're going to protest, protest conveniently. If you're going to disrupt someone's day when you're trying, and I felt I felt this way at the Thanksgiving Day Parade. And the Rockefeller Christmas tree. And when they were stopping people who were trying to go home on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day at JFK Airport after spending the Christmas holiday with their family. I, I just I just find it so incredibly offensive that your cause is so important. Whatever your cause is, that you have to disrupt everybody's day and lifestyle. Those are the people that I wish it would have seasonal affective disorder. But what can you actually do? Let's say you're Tony and you're stuck. You can't get your medication because these people are protesting and blocking your pharmacy. What can you actually do? Can you do anything? Well, look, they get arrested. Okay. They get arrested. They're released the next day. Whoop. whoop de doo What can be done? We're going to get to do it with John Banzaf. He's also proposed this idea, which I think is so fascinating, called cosmic nudging. I'll also ask him about the uh, Supreme Court hearing that case of uh, Trump eligibility. A lot to get into with this man. He's a brilliant man. He's uh, an expert engineer, went to MIT, in addition to being one of the most quoted law professors in the world. We'll also take your calls at 800-848-9222. Four open lines if you want to comment. John Banzaf, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. One of the things that I've found very frustrating with this latest round of protests is something that I have found frustrating with a lot of different types of protests over the years, whether we're talking Black Lives Matter or the environment or end the nukes, save the whales, support the police, deport the migrants, whatever the cause, I have never, ever seen the value in having innocent people's lives disrupted. People who are trying to do something like pick up their daughter from school or fly home after a Christmas vacation. I just don't see how it helps anyone's cause to have their whole plan, their whole day ruined. And you say, all right, well, they should arrest these people. Well, what's been happening in New York anyway is you arrest these protesters and they're just let out. Oftentimes within a day. Now, what happened yesterday, that was a little bit more than a day from what I understand with most of the arrests. But the discomfiture and the inconvenience for the person that's causing massive disruption 
is minimal. Well, there's someone who for years has been saying that the way to deal with these protests, whether they're protesting against Israel or in support or opposition to any other cause in the world, is not just to arrest them, but it's to sue them. He also happens to be one of our go-to intellects, not only on legal issues, but a host of other issues as well. Very, very pleased to welcome back to the program Professor of Public Interest Law Emeritus at George Washington University Law School, John Bansaf. Uh, Professor, it's great to talk with you. Thanks for joining us again. I'm happy to be back with you. And let me just amplify on that. It's not just inconvenience. The people might be stuck in their cars for an hour or two or three. One incident that I, that I became involved in involved a situation where an ambulance couldn't get through. Uh, a much more recent one involved a situation where a car was trying to deliver uh, organs for organ transplant, where minutes, much less hours, count, and they were delayed by these. So it's not just inconvenience. It can be much more. And you're exactly right. Simply arresting them with a threat of arrest doesn't seem to do much good. In many cases, cops do not, in fact, arrest. If they do arrest, the prosecutors often don't prosecute. If they prosecute, it's usually for something minor, a $50 fine, a $100 fine, which for many of these kids is not a big deal. And then they get to go to trial and they can use that as a way of, uh, as a sandbox Mm. to get publicity for their cause. Yet if you sue them, One thing most people don't realize, any one person who was stuck in their car, what we call false imprisonment, can sue all, any or all of the protesters who you find out were arrested from arrest records for the entire damages under a class action for all of the hundred different cars which were parked. The fact that he may have only contributed a little bit doesn't make any difference. So a kid may be willing to face a $100 fine. I don't think he'd be very interested in being sued for $500,000, having to pay for his civil defense, and then possibly having his salary garnished almost forever. Mm. Uh, So, for instance, uh, here is some audio of a gentleman yesterday who had to contend with uh, some of this traffic disruption. And you hear the frustration uh, in his voice as he's just trying to get over the Williamsburg Bridge to pick up his daughter. I mean, listen to this. So 
you mean to tell me that that fellow or anyone else that was similarly situated in the traffic disruptions yesterday, they could sue anybody that took place in yesterday's protest? That's exactly right. And this is far from theoretical. If you remember back a couple of years ago, uh, some people decided for political reasons at the time to block the George Washington Bridge in, in uh, between New York City and uh, New Jersey. Uh, people were detained for hours at a time under what we call tort law. That's a false imprisonment. You are basically locked in because you can't really go anywhere. You can't leave your car in the middle of a bridge. And uh, at least several suits have now been brought on that basis. So, yes, you can sue. And many of these, these you call them protesters, actually they're rioters or criminals because they're violating the criminal law, if they cause any damage, when they break a storefront window, uh, when they stomp on a car, when they do all of the other things they do, then they can be sued for that also. And we're talking here not just about what we call uh, compensatory damages, that is an amount supposedly to make a person whole or to compensate them for their harm, but also punitive damages, which can be 10 times higher. Those are damages that a jury imposes not just to satisfy the plaintiff, but to deter that kind of conduct in the future. And my guess is a lot of New Yorkers of this case came up mm. in New York and they happened to be trapped or they knew somebody who was trapped. They would sock it to them with big punitive damage. Well, I, I hope I, I have no doubt that we have some in our audience now who were affected either by this or the recent disruptions at JFK Airport. And I hope they uh, heed your guidance on this and sue. So it's a disincentive for future rioters or protesters. But I forwarded one of your commentaries on this subject to a few people that I thought would find it interesting. And one person said to me, oh, what difference does that make? These are 19 and 20 year old college kids with no money. What good does it do to go to the time, effort and expense to sue one of these people when they don't have any money to pay any sort of a judgment? Answer that critique. If someone is thinking about uh, actually sending a message with a lawsuit, why is it worth their while if the person that they're suing may not have any substantive assets? Because once you get a judgment against them, you got them by the short hairs, if we can use that term on the air. You can then garnish their wages uh, almost forever to get that repaid. Also, uh, unless they're going to default on the lawsuit, which means basically giving up and surrendering, they're going to have to go out and hire a lawyer to defend themselves. I don't know what it's running right now in New York City, but in Washington, D.C., $1,000 an hour for a lawyer, particularly going to trial, mm. uh, is not unreasonable. So, yeah, these kids are facing some uh, massive damages. And even though they don't have any money at the moment, many of them are looking forward to being doctors and lawyers and CEOs and so on. I think also they would not want that on their credit. They want to be able to get credit cards. They want to be able to get a mortgage on a house. They want to be able to get a car loan. None of this is any good. And again, compare it. What's the alternative? A criminal penalty, they pay a $100 fine and walk out. Big deal.
In addition to being a very distinguished law professor, you're also an MIT graduate with two U.S. patents. You've studied safety and you've issued proposals, many of which have been heated on anything and everything from school bus safety to, um, you know, rail safety. You've been very vocal about what's going on at the nation's airports. We saw that uh, horrible situation in Japan where uh, the planes collided and uh, there was some loss of life, but it could have been much worse. Recently, we saw what happened with the Alaska Airlines and the subsequent grounding of the Boeing 737. Why does air travel seem to be so perilous now? And what can be done about this? Well, actually, air travel is not perilous compared to the alternative, for example, driving a car or a bus or probably even a train. But it can be made much safer. To Just to give you the figures, we now have more than one a day what they call close runway incursions, which means almost two planes almost crashed. We've had three situations recently where they actually did crash, and in one there was a loss of life. The problem occurs when these planes crash into each other at airports because their traffic controllers are overburdened. They don't watch something. Things go wrong. Uh, Most of the solutions which have been proposed are going to cost an awful lot of money and take an awful lot of time to implement. I'm suggesting a very simple one, AI. AI today can drive a car on the interstate. It can almost drive a car on the road. It is much easier for AI to listen to the radio traffic from airports, figure out what they're talking about. It would have in its memory a map of all the runways and so on at the airport and using simple what we call algorithms and learning as it goes, it could very quickly predict whether or not two planes are likely mm. to be getting too close together and they would scream at the, at the controller, watch out, watch out, watch out. The final decision would not be made by a computer or AI. It would be made by the controller. But if he is alerted to it, he can then make a human determination. And that's one thing I think they ought to do. It can be tested in in literally a month or so. It can be implemented in less than a year. And since you mentioned the the, uh, situation about the bolts, as an engineer, I am amazed that they would rely simply upon bolts to hold something like that together. You Me- don't meaning the uh, Boeing 737 situation, in case yeah. people aren't up on that. Okay. Because what, what I can tell you is a simple engineering matter is you don't rely on just tightening bolts and nuts to hold something together in a critical situation. Yeah, when I put furniture together from Ikea, that's what I do. I tighten the bolt. But nothing happens if it gets loose and it doesn't vibrate. Very different in airplanes. One solution is you use what is called a lock washer. A lock washer is deliberately designed to prevent bolts from loosening. Even better is an old, situa- uh, an old solution I've used many times. It's a liquid. It's called Loctite. Hmm. And think of it as a kind of nail polish thing. You have a bolt, you don't want it to vibrate loose. You have a nut, you don't want it to vibrate loose. You basically slobber it with this nail polish-like thing. It forms a a, uh, crust, and then it can't turn no matter how much it violates. So I'm amazed that that the FAA would would permit planes to be put together like that or or hatches put put together like that, and that uh, nobody would think 
hey, why don't we just use 15 cents of worth of Loctite or a, a locking washer or both? You know, oftentimes it seems like the uh, the least expensive solutions are often the first ones overlooked, even though they may be the, the most effective. Uh, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, George Washington University Law School professor emeritus John Banzeff, a legend in the legal community and in the activism community who uh, calls balls and strikes. His political analysis, his legal analysis, his constitutional analysis does not waver whether we're talking about the people being affected being Republican, Democrat, or something else. Uh, Professor, if I can, before, just to go back to the protest situation in just a moment, because I'm trying to anticipate all of the uh, phone calls and email responses I'm about to get based on what you've said. And uh, some people may say, Okay. Um, the point of protests is not to be neat and convenient and to be as least disruptive as possible. The point of protests and civil disobedience is to get attention for your cause, whatever cause that happens to be. Uh, and uh, they're going to say, look, if you're going to be suing folks that are protesting on behalf of something righteous, whatever you think about the uh, cause of the um anti-Israeli protesters, then what good does it do if these protests are just neat and tidy and easily ignored by the general public? What do you say to that, John? Well, I have been a very strong defender of protests. First Amendment right to protest and petition the government for the redress of grievances. This is guaranteed in the Constitution, and I would not interfere with it in any way. But when you go beyond what is lawful, and you deliberately block traffic when you set fire to police cars, when you break windows, when you loot stores, you are no longer a protester. You are now a criminal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And even if you go back to the, the famous thinkers like Thoreau, they believed in civil disobedience, but they always emphasized that if you do it, you must pay the consequences. These protesters, whether it's these in the street or I see them on college campuses, they seem to think that they are allowed to protest, sit in the dean's office, lock up buildings, uh, chase away people, and they're not going to suffer any consequences. But you have to have them suffer consequences or else it will get worse, or should I say continue to get worse, because it seems to be getting worse and worse. More and more kids in college are being taught and believe that it is righteous and proper to engage in criminal activities in order to protest a righteous cause. Mm. But what may be righteous for you may not be righteous for me, and we can't have a system where it depends, does a college uh, discipline somebody, do the police step in, because they happen to believe the same way you do about abortion or Israel or gun rights or half a dozen other right. controversial issues. Right. And uh, my view is uh, I am not for these disruptive protests slash riots uh, that w- whether I agree with the cause or not. I mean, it's just absolutely uh, absurd to ruin people's days. And as you point out, potentially do things like hinder ambulances uh, in, in, no matter what the cause is. I have to pick your brain on the uh, transgender issue as well. I quoted extensively on um, Thursday or Friday's program from one of your comment 
commentaries regarding the USA boxing decision to allow people that are were born as biological males to actually compete against female fighters. Uh, I also mentioned some other stories that we're seeing in prisons around the country of hardened criminals, including murderers, who identify as females being housed with female inmates. And I pointed out how in the very recent past, there are a number of potential problems that can happen with this sort of arrangement. Give folks your view on uh, the transgender issue as it relates to both competitive sports, including boxing, but also the issuance of um, male inmates in female prisons. All right. Let's talk first about in sports. Uh, The recent decision of the U.S. Boxing Commission is to allow uh, what we call male to female trans athletes. I don't call them biological males because that's redundant. Uh, to compete against women, and this is in a sport that literally depends upon and requires competitors to beat the hell out of each other as much as they can possibly do. Mm. And as one person put it, men can now legally beat up on women. But the last time this was done in a very related situation, martial arts, the woman didn't last two minutes. She suffered a broken skull, and she said basically, I'm very tough. I fought lots of women. I'm abnormally strong. And I never, never went up against something like that. But that's MMA. I've come up with situations where people playing hockey, people playing rugby, people playing field hockey, people playing soccer, and even volleyball, which is not even a a contact sport. Uh, One of the instances that I came up with, was a young girl playing against a, a, a male on the other side, was hit and knocked on her rear end and head so badly that she suffered a concussion and couldn't play for several weeks. Uh, this is just wrong, and that's only one of the many problems. There are many reasons why we shouldn't have males playing against females. They have a significant size and strength advantage. It's unfair. And it's not just a question of boo-hoo, the girl didn't win. But many of these kids want to go for scholarships, admission to colleges, et cetera, et cetera. So it's that plus being demoralized. Again, the, the very real situation of injuries in many situations, and this kind of leads into what you're talking about, girls and women are forced to shower and change their clothing with a male, with his male genitals. And I say it hanging out in the shower room, which is a clear invasion of their right to sexual and and bodily privacy. And I've even seen situations now where girls are being punished for refusing to play against males because they're afraid or because they feel it's unfair, and in some cases even for just speaking out. Now, when males are claiming uh, to be females in order to get into a female prison, well, sure, I I do that myself. (laughs) I'm much less likely. If I had to go to prison, I'm much less likely to be beaten up by some guy who's bigger than me. Uh, Certainly, I'm not going to be raped, at least in the conventional sense. And, of course, uh, many women have gotten pregnant while they were in jail. And so far as I know, there's only one way that can happen, and that's when a male is is doing it. Uh, I I think the answer to this, and and I'm going to make a slight criticism, you keep talking about them as biological males or biological females, Uh, That's kind of playing into the other side, because you're either a male or a female. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And Lincoln had a famous test, which he used. He'd ask people who wanted to work for him. He said, suppose you call a tail a leg. How many legs does an ordinary horse have? And I would be five. And Lincoln would say, no. Four. Calling a, a tail a leg doesn't make it that. The fact that a male says that he wants to be treated as a female that he believes he's a female, whatever it may be, doesn't make him a female. It doesn't lessen the the risk of harm. It doesn't decrease the unfairness. It doesn't detract from the fact that women, and particularly young girls, don't really want to be subjected to changing their clothes and showering next to somebody whose genitalia is very different from theirs. I don't want uh, our time together to pass without me asking the news out of the Supreme Court this week regarding uh, President Trump and the decision by the state Supreme Court in Colorado and the secretary of state in Maine to prohibit him from appearing on the ballot because he purportedly violated the 14th Amendment. Other states are moving forward with their own challenges and other states may come to the same conclusion that Maine and Colorado have. The Supreme Court has indicated that they're going to uh, take a listen and a look at this case in early February. You know the Constitution and constitutional law better than anybody. If you were on the Supreme Court, what would your interpretation of the 14th Amendment be? Is President Trump prohibited from appearing on the ballot? Well, by way of full disclosure, I have to tell you that I have been involved in this. I have filed challenges based upon the uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment against Trump's appearing on the ballot. I think some 13 or 14 states, according to news reports, my analysis was picked up in New Hampshire and had an impact there. And the one issue that I zeroed in on was to, to take a position which is midway between two different expert groups. On the one hand, you have many people, including some conservative lawyers, who said basically that the thing was self-executing. It was clearly obvious that Trump had uh, participated in insurrection, and so any secretary of state could simply go ahead and kick him off the ballot. At the other extreme, people you can't do that, or at very least you can't do it unless he's convicted of a crime or something of that nature. I took a middle position. I said, look, That same 14th Amendment requires due process, which is legalese for certain procedural protections in a hearing. In other words, there must be a evidentiary hearing, a trial, something along that line. And that, in fact, is what has happened in Colorado. And it is also what happened in Maine. In Colorado, it was a trial before a judge. Both sides presented their evidence, and he found in the end that Trump had engaged in an insurrection. In Maine, there was an evidentiary hearing, uh, what we call an administrative hearing, again, following the rules, providing due process, and they concluded that he engaged in an insurrection. That's what I focused on. I haven't focused on the others, but it does seem to me that the other arguments against it don't really stand up. I mean, they say, well, this was 100 years old or whatever. It doesn't still apply. Well, why did they put it in the Constitution? Mm -hmm. All they wanted to do was keep out people who had just participated in the Civil War, which occurred five or ten years earlier. You could do that with a statute, or you would write the constitutional amendment much more specifically. They use broad and general language. So I think it still applies today. Some people argue that it doesn't apply to the president. He's not an officer. 
Well, he's not an officer. I don't know what the hell he is. He's not an elected representative. He's not in the Congress. He's not on the judiciary. And it boggles the mind to think that all of these legislators at the time thought that it was improper to have anyone who participated in the insurrection serve even as a lowly assistant secretary to the whatever, you know, some low-level position in the federal government, and yet you still allow him to become president. That doesn't make any sense to me. So I think there are good arguments in favor of it. We do have a rather conservative Supreme Court. In, in favor, hand, just to be clear, arguments in favor of prohibiting him from appearing on the ballot. Right. I, I think mm-hmm. there are good arguments in favor of both decisions which have been made, and I think the Supreme Court will probably deal with both of them. Uh, but, of course, the problem is that if any one of these situations, if any one of these issues goes against Colorado, for example, then Trump would stay on the ballot. If they decide it doesn't apply to the president, if they decide that that uh, only applies to the Supreme Court as an, or the Civil War as an insurrection, if they argue that it has to have a criminal trial, there are one or two other arguments thrown in there. In order to sustain the Colorado decision, there has to be a yes on each one of these major issues. That's going to be tough. But again, remember that Supreme Court is largely conservative, but they're also originalists and textualists, which is legalese for meaning they try to figure out what the words mean and what they meant at the time. And theoretically, they should not be considering Oh, my God, what is that going to do to the 2024 election? Is it taking power away from people? Is it democratic? Is it not democratic? They're supposed to enforce the Constitution. Let the chips fall where they may. Let's hope they do. The last time we spoke, it was right after those three college presidents had testified before Congress. Since then, two of them have lost their jobs. In the case of the uh, president of University of Pennsylvania, it seems to have been done by pressure that came about from uh, a donor or donors. In the case of uh, Harvard, it seems because they discovered some prior plagiarism. And uh, a lot of folks are vowing to go after that remaining university president that has yet to be fired. It's interesting to me to watch a lot of people that were traditionally conservative or that are traditionally conservative that decry cancel culture, uh, that talked about how opposed they are for penalizing people for speech, celebrating these folks get getting fired. Now, obviously, in the case of Claudine Gay, the Harvard president, it's a little bit of a different situation than simply getting fired because of what she said, because they found multiple instances of plagiarism. I'm curious how you view this whole situation going after these university presidents for their congressional testimony uh, based on what they said. And if you were that third university president, would you be making sure your resume was all polished at this point? Well, I think the questions that the three of them were asked, the key question was basically a loaded question. It's a little bit like having you stopped beating your wife. And the reason is that We may not like it, but the First Amendment, which applies to every state college or university, and which is followed by the great majority of private non-governmental ones, protects speech unless it creates a clear and present danger. As I put it, I can stand in the middle of the quad of my university and yell, nuke Norway, destroy Denmark, let's kill all the 
and fill in the blank, whatever you want, that speech is protected because there's no clear and present danger. What's going to happen? A student's going to come along and say, gee, I never thought of it, but I think I'll run over now and bomb uh, Brazil or nuke Norway. So the answer had to be that some of the speech is protected unless it crosses lines by either getting to be harassment or threatening a particular individual or something along that line. It was a loaded question, and they should have said to the, the congresswoman, I'm sorry, that's a loaded question. It's like, have you stopped beating your wife? And you know and I know it can't be answered yes or no. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. would have been a perfectly proper answer. What I think they can be criticized for is that on many campuses, they have provided extreme protection for certain viewpoints, usually those which we think of as being on the left for LGBTQ, for blacks, and so on, whereas they have often not provided that same level of protection with regard to threats and claims against Jewish kids. And if they, in fact, are operating on that double standard, and I think most of them, many of them are, then that is what they should be criticized for. What I have said is that they should adopt three very simple rules. Number one is simply prohibit projecting uh, signs on, on your buildings. That's what happened at GW. Secondly, you should recognize that they do have a right to protest, even anti-Semitic, racist, homophobic, sexist, this is misogynist speech. It's all protected free speech as long as it doesn't cross those lines and become harassment or a specific threat or whatever. But third, and this kind of brings us back to where we started with the riot, when students go beyond mere protest and they engage in activities which are criminal and or prohibited by the university law, they should crack down immediately regardless of the cause, whether it's Hamas or Israel or Gaza or gun control or abortion or whatever it is. Too often, our presidents have been, well, they haven't had the guts to do that. And they'll let the students sit in. They'll let them chain themselves in the president's office. They'll let them chase other students around. They'll let them physically assault speakers or shout down speakers and so on and do absolutely nothing. And that, of course, just encourages this kind of mm. lawful, unlawful conduct, and it was directed at Jews. Uh, we have a real problem on our cam- on many of our campuses where the Jewish students are saying they are literally afraid. I've read of situations where they were chased into a library, had to hide there, where they have to have escorts. I have seen videos where a Jewish student was surrounded, and in one case, even by the, somebody on a law review, a law student who really should know better. And so behind all of this, I think, is the problem. Something is happening at our universities. All right. Undergrad, uh, as well as at law schools. John, we're going to have to end it there. Not happening. Uh, this is not happening with other students. We're doing something wrong in our teaching. I, I appreciate the time, as always. Thanks for staying up late. I'll look forward to our next conversation. We didn't even get a chance to get into cosmic nudging. And with all the uh, space news next week or this week, we're going to have to save that for our next conversation. Thank you so much. Let's do it. Let's nudge some newses.
John Banzaf, Professor of Public Interest Law Emeritus at George Washington University Law School. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side at Midnight with Frank Morano. Hey, hey, Mama said the way you move gonna make you sweat, gonna make you groove. Until the top of the hour, a little Led Zeppelin today. You know what today is? Today is the 80th birthday of none other than Jimmy Page. Oh, yes. The guitarist and founder of the rock band Led Zeppelin. Can you imagine that somebody from Led Zeppelin is 80 years old? You know, it's funny. Some of these uh, classic rock bands, whether it's Led Zeppelin, the Rolling Stones, uh, you know, uh, Kiss, I guess is even though you know they've been around forever, they just seem like they should never get old. I mean, the guy that's singing, you know, a Led Zeppelin song shouldn't be 80. Just should be eternally young. Going to get to your questions, your comments, your thoughts in a moment. 800-848-9222. It's 800-848-9222. If you want to um, participate, if you want to send me an email, we're going to read through your email next hour. My email is frank.morano. That's frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. And you can send me a note to be read on the air if you don't feel like calling in. But um, we also have a Facebook group where listeners can engage with one another. It's uh, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. Just search that on Facebook. You know, one of my colleagues who's a member of the Facebook group he said to me yesterday, you know, Frank, I love you, but I have to drop out of this group. Everybody in this group of yours is just so incredibly negative, at least the ones who post. So the, all those negative Nellies out there, you're actually, and that's just a regu- one person. I hear this from a lot of people. You're actually driving people out of this Facebook group. Would it kill you to be a little positive? I mean, I don't mind any criticism of me. I want to be very clear. But for some reason, they don't just stop at me. They go into each other. They start criticizing each other, start mentioning the other hosts, even though that's supposed to be one of the rules. Don't pick on the other host. And, you know, it's funny. I pre-approve certain people because they'll have an on-topic conversation, on-topic post, on-topic post, on-topic post. And then I said, all right, let me pre-approve them. They're always going to be on-topic. And then all of a sudden, oh, yeah, and -and so-and-so sucks. Oh, geez, what did I pre-approve? And now 30 people have responded. I can't go back and delete it. But I'll tell you, one person on uh, Facebook that I do always make an effort to read their posts is William Shatner. And he posted something that absolutely fascinated me just about nine hours ago. 
It's a William Shatner Antarctica cruise. This looks like such an interesting thing. It's about a year from now. It's an iconic holiday voyage. This is what it says. It says, friends, you can join me on an adventure of a lifetime, a voyage to the frozen continent of Antarctica. Now, it's Shatner speaking. Yours truly, along with retired NASA astronaut Scott Kelly, hosted by Free the Wilds, Fox Daniel, and Future of Space in partnership with some other person I'm not familiar with, will embark on a journey from space to sea for this 2024 holiday voyage to Antarctica aboard a new ultra-luxury polar-class expedition vessel. Space is limited book now. I got to tell you, this looks pretty cool. It's limited to only 260 guests, but I've always been fascinated by Antarctica. I mean, it's a it's a continent that is just filled with mystery and to be able to go there with William Shatner and Scott Kelly. So I said, let me look into it. Let me click the link um, space to see dot IO. If you want to look at it, the cheapest suite that you can get and they go from the kind of regular to the super luxurious looks like a mansion on a boat, the cheapest suite that you can get. And I knew it was going to be expensive. If you book now prices go up in a couple of weeks. If you book now, it's $35,500. Now, to go to Antarctica with William Shatner and Scott Kelly, that's not a crazy amount of money. Now, it does then go up to the highest uh, level suite, which is a winter garden suite. It goes up to $91,500. I mean, I, I still don't, need, I don't have $35,000 to spend on a cruise to Antarctica. And I don't know that my wife would be into this, but it sounds, it sounds fun. You get, you know, airport, you get uh, in a hotel in Buenos Aires, round-trip air charter flights from Buenos Aires to Argentina, to another section of Argentina, a one-night hotel accommodation in Buenos Aires, food and beverage on board. What's not included is round-trip flights from wherever you're coming from, in my case, New York, to Buenos Aires. So I also have to pay to fly myself to Buenos Aires. I don't know. I mean, it's not inconceivable that I could save $35,000, but I can just picture my wife's reaction when I say, Honey, I'm squirreling away a little each month so that we can go to Antarctica for William Shatner. With William Shatner. And she'll say, Well, what about our son's college tuition? Maybe we put a little something away for that first. So if I strike it rich, I'm going on this Antarctican cruise. I think that'd be fun. Keep asking questions. 